Welcome to the inaugural edition of Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a new podcast sponsored by the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, and I am the chair of the Political Science Department and host of this podcast. I and my colleagues look forward to provide, through this podcast, expert analysis of current political events and issues, delving more deeply into their causes and consequences than can be found in typical media sources. Over the next few months, we plan to bring you occasional episodes on important issues as they arise. In the future, we hope to provide this podcast on a regular schedule. All the views you hear on this podcast are mine and those of my guest. The topic for today's podcast is the 2018 midterm elections, a preview. To help us understand the 2018 midterms, I am joined by Professor Adam Myers, an expert on American political parties and elections. Professor Myers' PhD is from the University of Texas at Austin, and he is beginning his fifth year on the Providence College faculty. Adam has published numerous articles on state party competition and state political institutions. Professor Myers, welcome, and thanks for helping us kick off this podcast. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Okay, to start us off, can you remind our listeners what midterm elections are and what offices are at stake? Sure. So midterm elections are elections that occur in the middle of a president's term in office. Um, And the reason we have them is because under the U.S. Constitution, presidents serve four-year terms, but members of the U.S. House of Representatives serve two-year terms. So all 435 U.S. House seats are up for election this year. In addition to that, a third of the seats in the U.S. Senate, actually slightly more than a third, are up for election this year. Um, And on top of that, 33 of the 50 states are holding their gubernatorial races this year, and nearly all states are holding their state legislative elections this year. So there's really a tremendous number of elections that are going to occur in this coming November. Great, Adam. So a lot's going to be happening in November. Uh, Lots of races, uh, lots of things to uh, look at. So the Republicans have had a majority in both houses of, uh, uh, in the House of Representatives. Since 2010, uh, they gained a majority in the Senate in, what, 2012? Uh, 2014. That's right. Some commentators are predicting that the Democrats may take back the House this November. Uh, What must happen for the control of the House to shift from the Republicans to the Democrats? And how likely do you think that's going to occur? So it's an excellent question. I would say it's more likely than not to occur, but... It's also possible that Republicans will maintain control of the U.S. House. Um, So let's kind of step back a little bit and kind of explain the nature of the race for control of the U.S. House this year. So as I said earlier, there are are 435 seats in the House of Representatives, and Democrats need to flip 24 seats that are currently held by Republicans um, in order to take control of the chamber, right? Now, by recent historical standards, uh, that's very doable, um, especially in a way of election. So for example, when Republicans took control of the House um, in 2010, um, they flipped 63 seats. Four years before that, when Democrats took control of the House from Republicans in 2006, they flipped 31 seats. So flipping 24 seats is not at all exceptional by historical standards. And this year, there are about 100 
House elections that political pundits and observers are saying are competitive, and the vast majority of them um, are held by Republicans um, currently. And so the wind is definitely at Democrats' back. And there's a number of reasons uh, that commentators think Democrats have an advantage in the race for the House this year. Um, the first is that political conditions favor them. Um, because in general, the party that is out of power in the White House picks up seats um, in midterm elections, right? Um, the only time that has not happened um, in a president's first term over the past 100 years was in 1934 and then again in 2002, right? So almost always in elections like this, the out party picks up seats and Democrats are the out party. Um, on top of that, um, generally speaking, the out party picks up more seats when the incumbent president is unpopular and President Trump's approval ratings are fairly low right now. They're in the low 40s. Um, a few polls have them slightly above uh, 45%, but generally speaking, they're in the low 40s. And that's not a good place for a president's approval rating to be if the party of the incumbent president wants to keep control of, a of the House chamber. Um, on top of that, um, a large number of Republicans have are retiring from the U.S. House this year. And so there's a fairly large number, I believe 40 open seats um, currently held by Republicans um, that are going to be contested in November. And generally speaking, it's easier for um, a party not currently holding a House seat to win a House seat if it's an open seat rather than if an incumbent is running in that seat again. Um, so for all those, those reasons and for others that we can get into, I think um, you know, the consensus is that Democrats have a better chance than not of taking control of the House. Having said that, there are some countervailing factors. Um, one of the main countervailing, countervailing factors that kind of might kind of upset this equation a little bit is the fact that right now the economy is booming. Um, I think most, uh, most objective um, sort of observers of the economy would say right now the economy is doing pretty well. Um, some, some would say it's doing very well. Um, generally speaking, when the economy is doing well, the party currently in power um, does better. Um, the reason that might not be as significant this year as in previous years is because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these days, um, Americans, the way they view the economy is very much filtered by their partisan lens, right? So right now, Republicans think the economy is doing very, very well, um, and uh, they, they give President Trump credit for it. Democrats think the economy is doing less well, but to the extent they agree it's doing well, they say President Obama is deserves credit, not President Trump. In any case, I think that the fact that the economy is doing well is going to sort of buoy support for President Trump among Republicans, and that might be enough for Republicans to, t to keep control of the House. So Adam, uh, if I recall, in 1998, when President Bill Clinton, a Democrat, was president, the Democrats actually gained some seats in the midterm election in 1998. So that sort of goes against the theory that the president's party loses in the off year. So what was different then, and why might, why might that not happen this time, given what you just said about uh, Republicans perhaps approaching this election in a very partisan way? Right. So that happened in 1998. You're right. Democrats gained seats in 1998, even though you know, Bill Clinton, a Democrat, was president. And four years later, Republicans gained seats in the House um, in 2002 when 
Bush was president and he was a Republican. So sometimes a president's party can pick up seats. The difference I would say between those two elections and this one is that if you look at the approval ratings of Clinton in 1998 and the approval ratings of Bush in 2002, they were quite high. In both cases, they were above 50 percent. Um, so in 1998, the economy was doing very well, and voters tended to blame um, Republicans for pursuing Bill Clinton's impeach, uh, impeachment over the Monica Lewinsky affair. Um, in 2002, um, the country rallied around President Bush and the Republicans after 9-11. Um, and so because the presidents, the incumbent presidents were unusually popular in those years, that allowed uh, the party of the incumbent presidents to gain seats in races for, in the U.S. House. This year, however, um, President Trump's approval rating is substantially lower than those of those two presidents. So that's why I don't think most people expect that to happen. Another factor that we've heard a lot about lately is this whole issue of gerrymandering. And there's been a lot of talk in recent years that because other Republicans gained control of many state legislatures in 2010, they were able to draw electoral districts to their advantage, creating kind of a structural advantage for the Republicans in House races. Why isn't that going to be a factor this November? Why wouldn't one argue that maybe the Republicans have a chance of maintaining their majority because they have this kind of structural advantage as a result of the way districts or uh, boundaries are drawn? Right. So that's an excellent question. And I think you're, it's what we might expect to occur in regards to gerrymandering will show up this year. In other words, I think Republicans will enjoy, to some extent, some built-in advantages in races for the U.S. House because they are able to successfully gerrymander congressional districts in states like Wisconsin and Florida and North Carolina uh, back in, in 2010. Um, but the reason that Democrats are going to be able to, um, or might be able, to take control of the House irrespective or notwithstanding um, the successful Republican gerrymanders of 2010 is because, as it turns out, even the most successful gerrymandering efforts cannot withstand political forces in a true wave election. Um, and, you know, Republicans did gerrymander an awful lot of congressional districts to favor themselves in 2010, but in a true wave election year, the, um, you know, those kinds of gerrymandered districts are still going to, in some cases, fall to the Democrats. And the thing about gerrymandering, of course, is that it involves, in many cases, spreading Republican voters, enough Republican voters across enough districts to create majority Republican districts and in those, to, to create a lot of majority Republican districts. But when you do that, you create a lot of marginal districts that can fall to the other party in a way of election. Well, that's a heartening story for democracy, right? So that you can't necessarily rig democracy towards one party or another, or the people's voice still can make itself heard Absolutely. if there's a wave. I, I think that's one reason why, you know, a lot of the panic that we've seen about the issue of gerrymandering um, over the past year or two, um, especially from Democrats, um, might be a little overmuch. Um, gerrymandering is not able to permanently lock a party um, into power um, for long stretches of time, let's put it that way. Okay, so let's turn to the Senate. What are the chances that Democrats might uh, gain a majority in the Senate? So there, uh, I would say the Democrats' chances are significantly smaller. Um, 
Taking control of the U.S. Senate is a much tougher proposition for Democrats than taking control of the U.S. Houses. And, and the reason for that is because, so at the moment, Republicans hold a two-seat advantage in the Senate, uh, meaning there are 51 Republicans in the Senate, 47 Democrats, two independents who align with the Democrats for organizational purposes. Um, so Democrats need to gain two seats in the U.S. Senate in order to take control of the chamber. Now, that in and of itself doesn't sound that difficult. The problem is that Democrats this year are at a significant disadvantage in terms of the Senate races that are actually going on. Um, the reason for that is because the Senate seats that are up this year, right, were last up in 2012 because senators serve six-year terms. 2012 was a good Democratic year, right? President Obama was reelected in that year. Um, and so Democrats won some races in 2012 in territory and states that are ordinarily inhospitable to Democrats. Um, and even more so now, right? Some of these uh, states in which Democrats won Senate races in 2012 um, have swung substantially to the GOP in the Trump era. So I'm talking about North Dakota which Trump won by 36 percentage points, West Virginia, which Trump won by 42 percentage points, um, and, and, and others like Montana and Missouri. Um, this year, Democrats are, def of the 36 Senate seats that are up this year, Democrats are defending 26 of them, right? That's an incredibly high number. Um, and of those 26 seats, 10 are in states that Trump won. Um, on the other hand, Republicans are only defending 10 seats, and only one of those seats is in states that Hillary Clinton won. And so really, in order for Democrats to take the Senate, they would need to hold all or almost all of their seats in states that Trump won. They would need to win the one Republican-held seat in the state that Clinton won, which is in Nevada. And they would need to pick up at least one other currently Republican-held seat in a state that Trump won, um, and probably more than that. So it's a very tall order, um, but it's not impossible. OK, so to sum up in Congress, we might see the Democrats taking the House, but probably not the Senate. So we're looking forward to, uh, in Trump's uh, last two years, possibly a Democratic House, a Republican Senate, and a Republican President. That would be my expectation. Again, anything can happen, but as of now, that would be my expectation. So this seems to be a really important election for the Democrats, uh, gaining control of the House, which is a possibility would be certainly a great achievement for them. And certainly politically, they would like to be in a position to perhaps counter uh, President Trump. So with so much at stake in this election, what kind of arguments are the Democrats making to the voters to appeal to them and to get them to vote for Democrats? So I would say that um, apart from vote for us, um, if you want to send a message to Trump or vote for us if you want to put a check on Trump, um, there is no overarching message. The party um, does not have a coherent policy message that it's sending to voters. Um, at least that's my assessment. And I think that's not necessarily unexpected given the fact that the party out of power in the White House usually has trouble putting together a coherent message to send to voters since it doesn't actually have a national leader in the same way that the party currently in the control of the presidency does. Um, having said that, I think that there's, there's kind of two additional factors at play right now that are sort of preventing Democrats from formulating a united message. Um, the first is um, internal divisions, really among Democratic leaders, elites, politicians, activists, um, in regards to public policy. 
Um, so one of the most interesting developments of the past year or two has been the rise of sort of a hard left within the Democratic Party. And we saw that most clearly in the primary um, a little while ago in New York's 14th Congressional District when where um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, an avowed democratic socialist, defeated a long-standing democratic incumbent, right? Um, so there's increasingly a strong left-wing force that's asserting itself within democratic party politics, but there's also more traditional establishment Democrats that aren't so hard left that don't think that that's the road the Democrats should go on. And so the internal divisions um, that are emerging within the Democratic Party are preventing the party from having a coherent message. Um, and then on top of that, there's also the fact that the districts, the House districts that Democrats are targeting this year are exceptionally diverse in terms of demographics. I mean, if, if you look at the, the, the toss-up House races, many of them are in relatively upscale suburban districts in places like suburban D.C., suburban California, New Jersey, and so forth. Others are in more downscale rural districts and parts of the Midwest. Um, Democrats have to tailor their messages very differently depending on the kinds of districts they're running in. And because they're running in very different types of districts, I think that they're intentionally deciding not to adopt kind of an, an, a uniform message. Different Democratic candidates in different parts of the country um, have different messages. Now, there's been some talk in uh, the last few years of the extent to which younger people are embracing the Democratic Party. Uh, we saw that in the 2016 campaign, a lot of young Democrats mobilized uh, by Bernie Sanders. And some Democrats seem to count on uh, these younger voters, many of whom are uh, younger voters who are more racially diverse than older voters, uh, that these voters uh, are in fact going to uh, give the Democrats uh, a lot of support this election. How important do you think younger voters are going to be in November? It's a fascinating question. Um, if history is any guide, they won't be that important because, um, as is well known, uh, turnout among younger voters has always been significantly lower than turnout among older voters. And it remains to be seen if this election represents a breakthrough in political engagement among younger voters. I, I guess I would say we're seeing some evidence of that um, in terms of um, you know, interest in politics and so forth. but. I don't think I, I haven't seen any hard data from the primaries to suggest that young voters are turning out or prepare to turn out in November in droves. I would also say that you know if you look at some of the uh, public opinion polling that's been done among millennial voters and and so forth, it's it's what, one thing that's very interesting is that this enormous gender gap has emerged among millennials and and um, and this is something that. I don't think the media is covered sufficiently and that is sort of unexpected. Female millennial voters are overwhelmingly democratic and overwhelmingly opposed to uh, President Trump. Male millennials, not so much. And so it remains to be seen, given the emergence of this gender gap, um, whether the millennial generation is going to be as much of a, of a pro-democratic, uh, pro-left force as the media sometimes suggests. Well, that's very interesting. So the male younger voters uh, may, may in fact uh, make the, uh, the, the influence of this generation uh, more diverse and not concentrated towards the Democrats, as yeah. a lot of people say. So uh, 
What about the Republicans, though? Uh, you say they're kind of at a disadvantage in the House. Uh, what kind of argument, though, are they making to try to hold on to the House? What what uh, kinds of strategies are they following to to maintain their majority there? So, as best as I can tell, in kind of examining all the different races that I'm following across the country, it seems to me that there is no, like with the Democrats, there's no sort of unifying policy message that Republican voter, the Republican candidates are sending. Um, rather, the main message, uh, the main overarching message that I'm seeing from Republican candidates across the country, at least Republicans who are running for Congress, is vote Republican in order to protect President Trump. Um, I think that essentially the strategy that most Republican politicians have settled on is what political scientists call a mobilization strategy rather than a conversion strategy. In other words, Republican politicians are determined to win or try, are going to try to win by turning their base out rather than convincing people who are not in their base, base to vote for them. And the way they're doing that is by telling them the Democrats are out to get President Trump. They're going to give him hell. If they take control of Congress, they're going to impeach him and so forth. We need a Republican Congress to protect President Trump. And so that's why President Trump has been talking about immigration a lot? I would say that immigration... So I would say immigration is one of the few issues um, that, uh, you know, Trump, the, the core members of Trump's base care about a tremendous amount. Um, I, in, in thinking, and so it's not, it's not surprising to me that he's talking a lot about that. Um, Republican congressional candidates are not talking about immigration as much as he is, although some of them are. Um, but I, it seems to me that, that, that that's not their core message. Um, it's not the core message of most Republican candidates running for Congress. Vote for us if you want tougher borders. Um, their core message is, I am pro-Trump. I am standing with the president. Right. There's obviously exceptions to that in Republicans that are running in swing suburban districts who don't want to tie themselves so much to President Trump. They have to walk a finer balance. Yeah, it seems to me the immigration issue could cut both ways. It might... Uh in fact, attract a few very hardcore uh, Trump supporters, but it also might alienate right. maybe more moderate, even moderate Republicans, people who have more benign views towards immigration and immigrants. Right. So let's talk about the state level. And your in, uh, first comments about the midterms, it sounded like a lot of the action in November is going to be at the state level. Uh, what do you see as the highlights there? What can we expect? Uh, in state races? So I think bef before I get into the individual races, I think it's important to give folks a sense of why state level elections are so important, especially this year. Um, you know, Americans don't know nearly as much about state politics as they know about, about national politics, and that's in large part of the f uh, a result of the fact that our media environment has become so nationalized. Americans these days read national media sources, not local media sources, um, and, and they surf national websites and not local websites. Um, but I would argue that if one's interested in public policy and in the policy consequences of these elections, that arguably it's the state elections that they should be focused on. And the reason I say that is because it seems like these days it doesn't really matter whether there's unified government or divided government at the federal level. Not much is getting done via the traditional legislative process. I mean, 
you know, Congress was gridlocked and polarized during the Obama years, and everybody thought that nothing was getting done because of divided government, because Republicans controlled Congress, but the president was a Democrat. But now we have unified government at the federal level, and due to the internal divisions within the, within the congressional Republicans, um, not much is getting done in terms of the traditional legislative process now either. I mean, the, they had one big success, the, the, the tax cut. And President Trump has gotten a lot done via executive actions, these executive orders. Um, but as but what we've seen over the past 15, 20 years in American politics is that as the federal government has become more gridlocked, more polarized, um, the states have become the, the kind of the leaders in what political scientists call policy innovation. Um, on a broad um, scope of domestic policy matters, taxes, education, labor issues, social issues like abortion and gay marriage, and gay rights and guns and so forth, um, the states have led the way. And so if you're, and so folks who are interested in domestic policy, I would argue, should be focusing on state level elections this year as much as they're focusing on the race for control of Congress. Um, now, as far as the races go, um, you know, we should talk about governor's races and then state legislative races. Um, in terms of governor's races, there's 33 contests going on this year. Republicans are defending 26 governorships, so they're, they're definitely playing defense. Democrats are only defending nine, so they're definitely playing offense. Um, I would argue that the most kind of crucial and interesting governor's races this year tend to be occurring in the Midwest. Um, the Midwest is really the, the gubernatorial battleground. States like Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Ohio, Illinois, and Kansas um, are all featuring very competitive and very interesting governor's races. Um, state legislatures, um, and by the way, we can talk about those, some of those governor's races individually if you like. Um, the, race for control of, the races for control of state legislatures are also interesting. Republicans control 25 of the 50 state legislatures these days. Democrats only control seven. So once again, uh, Republicans are on defense. Uh, Democrats are on office. And you know, if there's a big Democratic wave, I'd expect Democrats to retake control of a lot of um, state legislatures in the Midwest and in the South as well. Well, let's follow up a little bit. What about Wisconsin? Uh, Governor Scott Walker is running really for the third time, right? It's, he's running for re-election, but he had to win a referendum. Uh, he was was recalled and had to win a recall election. Uh, he won uh, that recall, uh, and even though all, he had generated lots of controversies in his policies towards public sector unions, now he's running for re-election. Uh, what do you see as, uh, what are his chances, do you think? Yeah, so that that is one of the marquee gubernatorial races of this cycle. Um, so, as you said, Scott Walker is, is one of the most prominent governors in the country because he became kind of a Repub star among Republicans when he successfully um, pushed through a, a bill and signed a bill into law um, ending collective bargaining rights for public employee unions, right? And Wisconsin is a, is the state in which public employee unions arguably were founded, right? It's where the biggest public employee union in the country, AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and, and Municipal Employees, started. And so when Scott Walker, when Wisconsin became a state in which public employee unions were weakened, thanks to Walker, that was a huge deal. And then, of course, later on, 
um, Scott Walker signed a bill making Wisconsin a right-to-work state, so he, he weakened private sector in addition to public sector unions. Um, and Democrats, for Democrats, I would argue um, in Wisconsin, this is a, an incredibly important election. If Scott Walker wins a third term, I think that we can more or less say that Wisconsin, at least in terms of state politics, is a Republican state. Um, Democrats have nominated um, the state superintendent of schools, a guy named Tony Evers, probably the most credible candidate they have. Um, I think it's going to be a very, very close race um, and, and one that, you know, has national consequences. And what about Kansas? There was a really uh, hotly contested Republican primary. Uh, Chris Kobach, the Secretary of State, squeaked out a win. He was strongly backed by President Trump. Uh, what do you think Kobach's chances are of winning in Kansas? So another fascinating race. Kobach, you know, is the most polarizing Republican that Kansas Republicans could have chosen, given the fact that he's um, gotten so much national attention for his crusades against uh, um, you know, undocumented immigrants and, um, you know, and voter fraud, at least from his perspective, Democrats would say it's a crusade in favor of voter suppression um, that he's that he's kind of waged as secretary of state in Kansas. Um, and on top of that, you know, Kansas is a state that's kind of still pulling out of a, of a, of a big sort of budget crisis um, that was sort of precipitated by um, the previous governor, Sam, Sam uh, Brownback when he pushed through this big tax cut a few years ago and and Kansas's budget crisis and the cuts to education that resulted from it also made national headlines. So I would say that given those factors, Democrats, the Democratic candidate for governor in Kansas, her name is Laura Kelly, um, who's a longtime state senator, she has a real shot. On the other hand, a lot of people thought that Democrats should have had a, you know, had a really good shot of beating Sam Brownback in Kansas uh, back in 2014, because that was right in the middle of the state's budget crisis. And yet Brownback still squeaked through, probably because um, Kansas is a very Republican state. And, the, and, and these days, you know, partisan voting is, is at an all-time high. People seem to um, vote for their party, um, regardless of, you know, in, in many cases, the particular policy circumstances that a state faces. And so given Kansas's overall Republican partisanship, I still think it's going to be hard for Democrats to win that race, but not impossible. So, so you've kind of identified a little paradox here. A minute ago, you were saying the real policy action is at the state level. That's where things are getting done. But then you just said, well, voters at the state level really bring their sort of national partisan partisanship into state races by voting uh, according to that. Uh, is, is that a paradox? Have, have I identified something that's kind of... You have identified, I, you can call it a paradox. I would call it a fundamental flaw in our political system. Um, what you say is absolutely true. State politics these days is nationalized in a way that um, it did not used to be. Um, if you go back 30, 40, 50 years, political scientists studying state politics were finding ver a very little link between um, party control of state government and policy outputs. It didn't really matter which party controlled state government, uh, state governments back then, um, at least in a lot of states. Today, 
um, state parties pursue the national part the nat the national agenda of their national parties right and so we see these huge differences between red states and blue states right um, and we, we saw this throughout the Obama years we're still seeing it um, in the Trump years right red states meaning states controlled by Republicans have been cutting taxes rolling back union protections rolling back environmental regulations and so forth um, you know uh, restricting abortion rights Blue states, states controlled by Democrats, have been doing the opposite, raising taxes, strengthening unions, um, boosting abortion rights. Um, this, is, this is all driven by the fact that increasingly state um, politicians are pursuing national agendas. Um, and because voters are focused so much on national politics, um, they're not able to hold state politicians accountable very well, even when um, the actions of state politicians lead to significant crises, like the budget crisis that occurred in Kansas. Um, there's a fascinating book that came out this year called The Increasingly United States about this very topic, about how the fact that politics in the U.S. has become so nationalized is preventing voters from being able to hold state politicians accountable, even though state governments are doing arguably more than they ever have. Uh, quick comments on state legislatures. Any big shifts we should anticipate there? So I would say that the, the legislatures of a lot of these closely contested Midwestern states, states like Wisconsin, Michigan, um, Minnesota, Iowa, um, are up for grabs this year. And if there's a big Democratic wave, I would expect Democrats to take control of some of the chambers in those states. I also think that in some of the New South states, states like Florida, North Carolina, um, if there's a big Democratic year, those uh, Democrats could take control of, of those state legislatures too. Okay, Professor Myers, to, to round out our conversation, I wonder if we get a little bit philosophical here yeah. at the end. So. We have midterm elections because of the Constitution. The Constitution provides for uh, elections to the House every two years. A third of the Senate has to be elected uh, every two years. Uh, so that's a, a sort of a part of the constitutional design. Uh, but my question is, is this a good idea? It seems like just yesterday, in 2016, we had a big national election, which uh, elected President. President Trump has been in office with a Republican majority in Congress for only two years, which isn't a very long time, and now we once again are caught up in another national election. Uh, were, the, were the framers right in setting up a constitutional system where we had two major national elections uh, within a time period of just two years? Well, I think that your one's position on that question really depends on kind of their broad philosophical preferences in regards to to how active of a government um, they want, right? If you favor an active government um, that's able to efficient, efficiently and quickly make public policy, then the framers design doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, right? Because you get a president elected by a certain electorate one year, and then two years later, you get a somewhat different electorate that elects a Congress, and because the president and the Congress are responsive to different elections. They often lock heads with each other. And as a result, it's more difficult to get stuff done. Um, so if you think it should be easy to get stuff done, so to speak, then the framers design doesn't make a lot of sense. If, on the other hand, you think it's important to create a lot of barriers to public policy making, 
um, because you think that um, given the fact the government is inherently coercive and so if it's going to if it's going to force a law on all of us that law has to enjoy broad consensus from um, as many branches and as many groups as possible if that's your position then I think you're then I think you have to conclude that the framers design makes sense right because under the system the only laws to get passed are laws that a fairly broad segment of society favors okay so here then uh, the, the decision depends upon one's uh, ideological position I think so uh, yeah liberals probably are not faring very well under the system but more conservatives should be happy that uh, every two years uh, there's going to be an election that might stand in the way of some activist president getting a lot done of course this time maybe it's the Democrats who are benefiting from exactly that, from right that so I think what you just said is generally the case but not always the case okay well thanks so much uh, Professor Myers I think we covered a lot of territory here a lot to watch out for as November approaches and see how things develop thank you a lot for your insights Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I would also like to thank uh, Joe Carr and Liz Kay of the Providence College Office of Marketing and Communications for their advice and assistance in developing this podcast. And special thanks to Chris Judge, also of Marketing and Communications, for managing all the technical and engineering, engineering details that are required to make this podcast possible. And a special thanks to our listeners for downloading, downloading this inaugural edition of Beyond Your News Feed. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and tell your friends about us.